Um, folks, thanks for coming along tonight with uh, a night of very bad weather in Sydney and in Melbourne. And as I mentioned briefly before we started the formal procedures, Tony Abbott was on the three o'clock flight up, out from Melbourne, coming here specially for this function. And he's stranded and hasn't got, the plane hasn't got off the ground. So he sent his apologies. Um, Tony wrote, um, Hi, Jared. My 3pm flight from Melbourne to Sydney still hasn't taken off due to alleged, <laughs> alleged storms and weather delays. Can't see myself getting to the event before 6.45 at the earliest, and I think that's right. I'm really sorry, Jared, because I've interrupted business in Melbourne to come back solely for this, but fear it might be best to push on without the launch, push on with the launch without me. Cheers, Tony. And I just wrote back, um, that's disappointing but understandable. I agree you won't make it. Uh, can we get your intended comments for publication later in the Sydney Papers online? I will launch and I will send your apologies, which I'm now doing. So firstly, I'm going to introduce Keith who's just written this, uh, this book, Australian Biographical Monographs, number 21, um, Keith Harvey's Brian Harradine, and I'll uh, introduce Keith briefly. He worked for 40 years in the Australian trade union movement based in Melbourne, retiring in 2011. He's a member of the Australian Labor Party. His memoir, mem Memoirs of a Cold War Warrior, about his life in the trade union movement and political Affairs in Victoria was published by Connor Court in 2021 and recounts his experiences as, a, as an anti-communist activist in the union movement. Uh, and this is his second publication on Brian Harradine, who he knew. So I'm now going to launch the book and talk briefly about Brian. And um, then Keith will talk and we'll come to questions and discussion. Now, I'm just about to review um, both in Scott Press's series, published by Anthony Capello at Connor Court in Brisbane, two, two booklets have just come out, one on Harrod and, of course, one on Arthur Corwell. And I've started the review, I've read both books and started the review, firstly, with Arthur Corwell, saying that in terms of electoral success, Arthur Corwell, the Labour Party leader uh, after Bert Evert, um, was probably the least successful politician in Australia and that he, along with Bert Evatt, he lost three elections in a row. Bert Evatt lost in 51, 54 and 55. Arthur Corbell lost in 58. Um, uh, sorry, Arthur Corbell lost in... Um, I'll start again. Um, Evatt lost in 54, 55 and 58 and Arthur Corbell lost in 61, 63 and 66. Brian Harradine, on the other hand, the independent senator for Tasmania, is probably the most successful uh, independent to ever uh, run in Australian, in Australian elections. He won elections for, to be senator for Tasmania in 75, 80, 83, 87, 93 and 98. That's six elections in a row and then retired. Um, he died in... He was born in 1935. He died in, in, in South Australia. He died in 2014. Um, after, after school, he worked in the railways in, in Australia Post, uh, so public sector jobs. He joined the Passionate Brothers, a religious order, for about a bit over two years, but left. Um, moved to Tasmania in 59 to work for the Clarks Union. Subsequently moved to the STA, commonly known as the Shop Assistance Union. Um, at the age of 29, at very young age, he became Secretary of what was then called the Hobart um, Trades and Labor Council and subsequently called the Tasmanian Trades and Labor Council. And he, he held that position until he 
entered politics or soon uh, until shortly after he entered politics. He held that position until 1976 and as the Secretary of the Hobart Trades and Labor Council and later the Tasmanian Trade and Trades and Labor Council, he was uh, a member of the ACTU executive which is one of the, he was one of the two members from each state. He was one of the, he was the leading member from the state of Tasmania on the executive where he stayed for some time. Now I first saw Brian Harradine in 1968 and I walked into the Melbourne Public Library and there he was in the newspaper reading room reading, <laughs> reading as a lot of politicians who reading about himself. <laughs> but he had a lot to read about because he was all over the newspapers because what had happened in 68 when um, you, you remember in 1963 the Labour Party um, had a meeting as to whether they would support the Northwest, Northwest, uh, what is it called? The Northwest. Northwest Cape base, effectively. And the leaders of the Labour Party were not members of the AOP executive. So the leaders of the Labour Party at the time were Gough Whitlam and Arthur Corwell, and they were photographed by someone that Alan Reid, the journalist, had got around to photograph them around one o'clock in the morning waiting outside to hear what their policy was going to be. This was an absolute disaster for the AOP and contributed to the loss in the 1963 election. And so the Labour Party was reformed and the leaders were put on the ALP executive. So Gough Whitlam, who, who we all know, and Lance Barnard, the Tasmanian, they were the Labour leaders uh, from, the, from the reps. And Lionel Murphy and Sam Cohen were the Labour leaders. Uh, the Whitlam and Barnard were the Labour leaders from the right and, and Lionel Murphy, Murphy and Sam Cohen were the Labour leaders from the left. Whitlam and Barnard in the House of Representatives, Murphy and Cohen in the Senate. Um, Whitlam moved to support Harradine and he was challenged by Jim Cairns who was on the left. Whitlam, Whitlam retired the Labour Party leadership and threw the leadership open to a ballot expecting that he wouldn't be challenged but he was challenged by Jim Cairns and he, and he narrowly won by 38 to 32 votes. So at the time because Brian Harradine was in this middle of this huge row in the Labour Party between Gough Whitlam the leader of the right, but also the most successful Labour leader at the time, and Jim Cairns, who became a disaster in the Whitlam Labour government when he was treasurer later on, on the left. This was a huge division. Harradine's in the middle. That's why he's all over the newspapers in 1968 when I first saw him. It's, um, I spoke to Gough Whitlam once about all this and he came up to me and, and he said, oh, Jared, he said, you know, yeah, that challenge from Jim Cairns. And he said, oh, you know who Jim Cairns is? Uh, you know who Jim Cairns' bag man was doing all the organising for him? And I said, no, Goff, I don't really know that. And he said, oh, it was Philip Adams. It was Comrade Adams, he said. So, there, which is true, it's been verified in Paul Strangio's book on, on Jim, biography of Jim Cairns, which is a good biography. So there you had a situation where Philip Adams, who became the great supporter of Goff Whitlam in 1968, was trying to get him knocked over as Labour leader and put in Jim Cairns as the Labour leader. That would have gone well. Uh, but it didn't happen. Um, but it's true. Now, I first met Brian Harradine down in Hobart. I visited Tasmania with Bob Santa Maria to address the, I was a young person at the time, um, or relatively young, um, the National Civic Council Conference. And Santa Maria knew Harradine and we went around and we saw Harradine in his home. He was home with his family. And we also saw Jim McCauley, the well-known poet, came out of Sydney, went down to Hobart, brilliant poet and uh, a good friend of Santa Maria. And, Macaulay was in hospital at the time. He, he died young at 1976 of cancer, but he was in the hospital at the time. And he had a great sense of humour because um, 
later on he was the one who spoke about his medical condition when someone asked him how he was with his cancer he said well being a, uh, the professor of English at the University of Tasmania, he said, well, better a semicolon than a full stop, which was um, a pretty good joke, I would have thought. Um, so, and on the night, I remember he did this, he, Bob Santa Maria was, was wont to do, was always doing these diagrams and notes and stuff, and at any rate, he turned some diagram he'd done about something around to Jim, and Jim looked at him and said, <laughs> he said, hey, Bob, he said, look, that just looks like that, that that he said looks it either looks like my a diagram of my recent operation or or the recent American advance into Cambodia, which was occurring at the time. I think Santa Maria had the had the advance. So um, now later on, Haradine, who really presents as a kind of Ben Shifley Labour guy, he wasn't a right winger. He was a social conservative. He was a, he was a practicing Catholic, a social conservative a kind of Ben Chifley Labour guy concerned about lower income people, concerned about people who had a little money. Uh, and, um, and that was all his life. So he, uh, he, he supported um, Harold Souter against Bob Hawke when Hawke attempted to become, successfully attempted to become president of the uh, ACTU. Um, and he, he remained a, a kind of, because uh, in those days Hawke was flirting with the left, not later on when he became prime minister. Um, so he remained on the ACTU, he never got into the Labour Party and was finally expelled from the Labour Party in 1975. Whitlam again supported him but didn't turn up at the actual conference that, uh, that where the decision was made. And Whitlam, is, um, as uh, Keith points out in his book, Whitlam said that the evidence against um, Haradine was essentially perjured. So what happened was, and I make the point because whilst he knew Bob Sanamir, he wasn't sort of run by Bob Sanamir at all because I moved to um, Tasmania in 1976 um, and it was well known that Bob Sanamir did not want Haradine to leave his position in the trade union movement in Tasmania and go into the Senate, but he did. He ran in the Senate in the double dissolution in 1975 and he won comfortably and uh, the figures that... Uh, Tasmania is a small state, but he got a lot of he got a lot of primary he got a lot of primary votes in a small state, um, and he he won the Senate election in 1975. And for the rest of his career, um, he stepped out of the ACTU in 1976. And the, the rest of a year, he the rest of his career was an independent senator uh, for Tasmania. Now, in 1982, as I point out in my book on Bob Santa Maria, he uh, he had quite a falling out with Bob Santa Maria and they, the two men didn't speak between 82 and 1998 when Santa Maria died. So Haradine was essentially his own man. Um, he was like that before he went into the Senate and you can see what he was like when he went into the Senate. He was very much an anti-communist, social democrat. And what I find uh, very uh, um, informative about Keith Harvey's book, he, he sort of gets it, he gets it right. He presents Haradine as he was and as those who knew him, understood him to be, and those who were fair to him understood him to be. He was nobody's man. And in the end, um, whilst, uh, or whilst Philip Adams turned against uh, Gough Whitlam uh, in the mid-60s, it was interesting, as Keith points out in his book, that the great journalistic fan of Brian Harrowing was not a, not, none other than the leftist Margot Kingston. He thought he was a, a great guy and uh, wrote nice words about him.
Now, Keith can talk about these other matters. He was involved tax, native title, industrial relations, um, and 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 more besides. But what and uh, before I just conclude, I just read when John Howard, there was a state in 2014, uh, a state funeral in Hobart at St Mary's Cathedral, and John Howard spoke uh, to reporters after it. He said about him, he was a just man and he identified with principles and stuck with them. He never deviated. If he gave his word on something, he stuck to it. When he wouldn't give his word on something you knew, you had no hope of getting it. Uh, that was the case, most famously with the goods and services tax. I was disappointed when he said, no, I cannot, but I wasn't surprised. And this comes very much out of um, his book. You might describe, he was a stubborn man, but he also was willing to make concessions. And when, when he made a position, he stood by it. Most famously photographed, uh, as Keith points out in the book, dancing uh, bare feet and outside Canberra Parliament House with uh, an Indigenous woman, which was a great photograph all over the front pages. All I can say about the good thing was he wasn't wearing sandals. Um, Keith, congratulations on your book and good luck. Thanks, Sherrod. Um, a bit higher. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you and uh, thank you everybody uh, for coming tonight. Firstly, I would like to um, acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting tonight and pay the, my respects to their elders past and present. Now, I'm not sure and I, ca I can't remember whether acknowledgements of country were common when Brian Harradine was in public life, but I think he would um, approve of them. In the, in the book, I've quoted a speech he made on reconciliation in 1988 when the federal parliament was uh, meeting uh, for the first time um, in its new building, um, uh, which was the opening of which was time to coincide with the bicentenary of uh, European settlement um, of the continent. And Senator Brian Harradine then said, and I quote, meeting in this new place, it is fitting that we acknowledge the fullness of human history in this land. This motion will stand as a statement of our commitment to national and individual reconciliation with the descendants of those who have suffered dispossession and dispersal in the wake of European and other settlement in 1788. And I think that view that Brian had then also permeates his attitude and his dealings on the question of the native title legislation giving effect to the WIC uh, decision, which I deal with um, in the book. My second job tonight was going to be to thank uh, Tony Abbott um, um, for coming along tonight and, um, um, and, and being here, but I, I would still um, like to thank him for his willingness um, to be here um, and um, to, to launch um, this book um, by me. Um, I was uh, I was surprised when Jared suggested um, that he, he would be the appropriate person to, to launch it. Um, but when I thought about it, I thought there's there's a lot of merit in that idea um, because um, they had similar views and were in the parliament um, at, at the same time. And of course, it's an honour for any writer um, particularly one um, as a little known as me, to have a former Prime Minister um, who uh, was uh, prepared to, to launch the book. 
Um, and I think it was also a mark of respect from Tony uh, towards Brian Harradine that he was prepared to do that. I did, I did mention, and this was going to be my really best joke, it's not going to work at all now. Um, um, I explained to, um, I understand that Jared explained to Tony that I was a member of the, you know, the Labor Party and of course this book was about somebody who was an independent. Um, but but um, Tony Abbott didn't apparently blink an eyelid and said, no, 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 that, that'll be fine, um, I'll come and do it. Now as Jared has already mentioned, um, Brian Harradine was expelled from the, the Labor Party in 1975 in some very unusual circumstances which I do describe um, in the book. But it is also true that members of the Labor Party did tend to be subject to expulsion uh, from the party if they stood on what was called unity tickets, mainly in union elections, but unity tickets between ALP members and either members of the Communist Party in the main or in some cases as members of the DLP. You tended to get expelled for being on those unity tickets. And my, my big joke was going to be that I was hoping to avoid um, uh, expulsion from the Labor Party by being on a unity ticket uh, with Tony Abbott here tonight. Um, but if we, if we manage to sign the book you know, together, maybe I'm, still, I'm still, still in trouble. But anyway, thanks for Tony Abbott for being uh, willing um, um, to, to, to launch the book um, and, to, um, and, and at least his commitment to being here tonight and we'll, we'll have to blame the Sydney weather rather than the Melbourne weather for his, for his delay. But I would also like to thank um, Jared for suggesting to me um, some time ago that I write this book. I didn't really think I had a, um, a biography, even a modest one, in me. But um, so I was a little reluctant to commit myself to the project. But once I got into it, um, I, I found uh, I thought that you know the, the job was worth doing. Um, as Jared has said, I did know Brian a little bit, and I'll, I'll mention some of that in a minute. Um, but as I got into it, I thought, yes, this is a life really worth recording. It hasn't, or at least I couldn't find it, having been recorded in total anywhere else. There's bits and pieces um, being written about him in various places, but nobody has thought to bring, um, uh, bring his life um, together from the earliest days um, when he wrote to a, a Catholic um, a magazine or newspaper in, in, in South Australia when he was six years old. And, and the editor of the children's page from that magazine said, um, in the words they used those days, a new king has obviously got a wonderful future. You should see how well he's written his letter at the age of six. So Brian was sort of active and interested in, in, in the world outside him um, from, from, from a very early age. But, um, so I'm, I'm glad that um, I, I did pursue this and, and bring this, um, this life um, um, together um, in one place. There's obviously a lot more that could be said. I learned a bit about Brian from just listening to, uh, uh, to Jared um, then. Uh, and I think his life probably warrants um, a longer biography. But they tend to be these days five or six hundred pages, so they're a bit they're a bit hard to get through um, at times. Um, but but the, uh, the this series attempts to do it in in a in a sort of capsule um, form, um, make it um, easy easy to read and and give an overview in a very accessible way. So I'm, I was I was pleased to be able to do this. And I'd also like to thank Anne and Jared for, for, for hosting um, tonight. Um, this is one more thank you. 
I would like to thank uh, Connor Court um, for publishing this series, and particularly the editor of the series, up to date, Scott Presser, um, who's with us tonight, um, for the publisher's commitment to publishing this this series of books, and to Scott's um, um, unstinting efforts to um, to edit all of these um, purely free, gratis, and for nothing, as I understand. Scott doesn't get paid for it, um, and there's a lot of work in this. And the series, Anne's written one of them, number 13, I think it was, on, on uh, Margaret Guilfoyle. Um, these, this is number 21. So I'm very pleased to declare that uh, this series of books has come of age um, uh, tonight with, uh, with number 21 um, in the series. Now, just returning to Brian um, Harradine, as we should. Uh, Brian Harradine, as Jared has said, was an absolutely genuine independent. Um, nobody um, controlled his vote um, except himself. He was, as Jared said, born in, born in South Australia in the, uh, the regional town of Corn. Um, and, uh, but he's, he, he, he emerged onto the, onto, onto the public scene when John Maines from the Clarks Union, who had a dual role as, um, as an officer of the National Civic Council as well, um, asked him to go to Tasmania to work uh, for the Federated Clerks Union um, in, in, in Tasmania in 1959, which, which Brian did. Um, and, he, and he took up that, that job with gusto. But it wasn't the only union job he got. According to one source I, I read, he was at one stage in a small state of Tasmania, an official of no less than 17 different unions um, because, you know, Tasmania was that, that sort of place. Um, but Brian was not just interested in Tasmania or his life in Canberra, he was interested in the fate of peoples um, throughout the world. Um, and like um, Jared, I did know Brian a little bit and I was going to tell you the story if you, if you don't, um, if you don't in my, mind a little, in my, in indulging myself a little, because uh, I did have a few uh, interactions with Brian, but the first one that I remember was in 1982 when Brian was appointed as the chair of a Senate committee of inquiry into certain industrial relations legislation that the then Fraser government uh, was seeking to put through the parliament. Now, some of the, the provisions of that uh, legislation concerned, in particular, the, uh, the Federated Clerks Union, which was Brian's first union in Tasmania, and the union for which I was working at the time as, as a humble employee, reporting to John Maines, uh, the, the national president of the union. And we were concerned about some of the provisions of that legislation because it promoted industry-wide unionism, whereas the Clerks Union was a craft or an occupational union. So we, we wanted to, um, I, pre I presume, John Maines was um, attempting to um, uh, to to leverage his uh, his personal relationship uh, with with Brian Harradine. Now, none of this was improper, I assure you. Just in case the knack is is listening in uh, to the Zoom um, tonight, none of this was improper. But we we thought we were, we had a bit of an in there, and we were going to be able to uh, to to hopefully influence Brian. So, I prepared some seventy odd pages of submissions, but. Um, to, to send up to Brian to, to uh, help um, him with background information on this. But we're obviously running late in, in, uh, in getting this information up to him um, because um, we ran out of time and somebody said we should use the latest modern technology to get this uh, material to him. And the latest modern technology in 1982 was, if you remember it, the fax machine. 
right? But we didn't have one. And Brian's office didn't have one either uh, in, in Canberra. So it was a bit of a problem, but we did know somebody who had a fax machine and another senator in, in Canberra was prepared to receive uh, this information and pass it on to Brian. So I prepared 70 pages worth of information and took it off to be faxed, only to find out that it took about three to four minutes per page uh, to fax this. So I've worked it out. It would have taken about four and a half hours uh, uh, to fax this material to Brian. And of course, uh, a flight from Melbourne to Canberra took 50 minutes, so um, that didn't do well. Um, but I, I do remember later on um, uh, talking to Brian in the, in the corridors of, of the Parliament House um, about the inquiry and, and, and how it was going. It all came to nothing, of course. The legislation wasn't um, proceeded with um, before the Fraser government was defeated and, and Hawke came to power in 1983. Um, but Brian Harradine, I think, one, one of the most critical things of, about Brian is that he occupied a particular place in the political spectrum. In my opinion, my personal opinion, it, it's, a, it's an appropriately balanced place. He was, and I think as, as Jared has already mentioned, and John Howard um, said, and um, both, both at his funeral um, and in his memoirs, that Brian Harradine was at all times a Labor man. He found himself expelled from the Labor Party in very unusual circumstances, which I can't go into tonight, but it is in the book. Um, but he was excluded from the ALP National Executive as early as 1968 for declaring that the friends of the communists would try and keep him from his seat. Uh, and of course that prediction um, came true. And he was kept off the executive even though the, the Tasmanian branch of the party kept electing him to the position but he, couldn't, he wasn't allowed to serve on that body from 68 to 75 when he was expelled. Um, so, but I think he was um, a Labor man um, at all times. And I tell the story in the book that he was elected in 1975 at the, you know, the, you know, the dismissal um, election. And the parliament was opened in February the following year. Uh, and of course, the first thing that happens there is this you know, governor general speech, the governor general being John Kerr. You know, the Labor Party boycotted his speech, so there was going to be nobody sitting on the opposition benches. So Brian Harradine took it upon himself, as he considered to be the only Labor person in the in the chamber, um, to go and sit in the um, uh, opposition leader's seat uh, in, in the Parliament, um, um, because uh, he he thought that was appropriate. Um, but as as Jared said, Brian was a he was a he was a, a labour man. He was committed to looking after the interests of uh, the less privileged in society. And as I suppose the most classic example of that is is he, you know, his opposition to the introduction of the GST, despite all the um, incentives that the uh, prime minister and the treasurer at the time could could offer him um, on that. He was a committed anti-communist. He was um, completely um, pro-life in his, in his approach um, and supportive of the family as a, as a cornerstone um, of society and in particular the right of people everywhere in the world um, to form um, families um, as they saw fit in accordance with their conscience. And he was particularly concerned about the policies of the, of the Chinese Communist Party government, the one party um, uh, there was, sorry, the one part, it's a one-party state, but also one-child policy that they had at the time, which often involved um, forced abortions, and there's a story about that in the book as well. 
Um, but the the main issues I think that he was uh, when, when you get into when you get into Parliament, and I sort of tracked how important his his vote was. Um, somebody's it's been referred to as as the sort of the balance of power. Had an email and had an email tonight from somebody who used to work for Brian as his chief of staff, and and pointed out that Brian said this was not the balance of power; it was a balance of responsibility, which he obviously took uh, very seriously. But the big issues that I've I've mentioned um, in the book that Brian had a, a very critical vote on was the partial, but he'd never approved the full privatisation of Telstra. His, his opposition to the GST, as I've mentioned but also the correct response, as Brian saw it, um, to the WIC native title legislation. For a lot of people, that's um, uh, one of the most controversial um, um, uh, you know, uh, positions um, he took. It's, it remains so today, even though I think you know, the legislation that was passed then by agreement between then Prime Minister John Howard and Brian Harradine has stuck, it stood the test of time and nobody has sought to change it. But it was extremely controversial at the time and, and remains so. Um, that's one of the biggest issues that I've, I've attempted to deal with in the book. So Brian Harradine was a, a conviction um, politician. He, he wasn't a horse trader, although he was prepared at times to, uh, to do the best deal he could. Uh, for the state of Tasmania and the people of Tasmania, and he did win major concessions from various governments um, for the Tasmanian people. One thing I think it's worth, and I'll, I'll finish on this note, is is to work out how you assess, you know, the the political legacy of an individual senator. Um, he he um, he, as I say, he occupied this this interesting um, um, position, which is now occupied by very few people, I think, in, in the federal parliament. He was, um, he was uh, centre-left on industrial and economic issues, but on the right on a range of social and moral um, issues. And it's difficult to assess overall, at the end of the day, uh, what his overall impact was. He was there for 30 years. A number of governments had to um, deal with Brian one way or the other. But it's also worth pointing out that when he was elected, first elected in 1975, there were hardly any independents in the Senate. You know, the Senate wasn't very important. Senator Arthur Geitzel told him, um, you know, the day before he gave his, his first speech, that it was a waste of time what you said in this place. You know, it didn't matter um, because nobody took any notice of the Senate. Well, I think that's changed uh, today. I mean, the Senate is now critical to getting every bit of legislation through because most governments in recent times have not had a majority in the Senate and they have to do with, deal with the Senate. So I think Brian Harradine did teach people um, how, um, how important the Senate could be and how important it was to deal with uh, the crossbenchers, which was small when he, he went there, but have grown progressively larger over time. But how do you assess the overall impact of somebody who was an independent, only ever had one vote, and when he ceased to be an independent, where, where is his legacy? When he retired, the group that supported him in Tasmania didn't run another candidate. I think the, the Greens picked up his position um, at, at the next election, and they obviously appealed to a somewhat different constituency to, to Brian's. But he was in, in the Senate for, for 30 years and successive governments had to, had to learn to deal with him. Um, but he was never a minister. He was never a member of any government. 
he had a sole and single vote um, to do uh, to, to to play with and and to leverage any influence that he might have. Mind you, he, he used the Senate committees extremely well and he spent a lot of time closely questioning departmental officials and ministers about any policy uh, issue that he was interested in. I think he probably drove them mad at times. But he was persistent, he was consistent, and, and he was passionate about the issues that, that he wanted um, to pursue. But I think the only way we can really ultimately, um, you know, assess his legacy is, is just uh, by asking the simple question, you know, did he operate um, in accordance with the values which he said he, he went to the parliament with, he expressed in his first speech and reflected on in his valedictory speech? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. He was, he was true, to, true to his values. He played a completely independent role. He, he, he fought the good fight as he saw it all the way to the end. Um, so I think Brian Harradine's life is worth recording. I'm, I'm happy to have been able to do it. And I thank Connor Court and Scott in particular um, for giving me the opportunity to publish this short book. Thank you. Thanks. And so now we come to questions and discussion. Before we do, I declare Keith Harvey's Brian Harradine well and truly launched. And if you just come back here, we'll talk together. Uh, and as I said, anyone who buys a copy tonight, Tony Abbott's happy to sign it, it when and if he gets back from, from Melbourne. Um, you see, I came yesterday. You know. <laughs> You're taller than me. You speak there. I'll get this one back here. Um, just go back to... Brian Harrity, you describe in your book, he is unusual for a politician is that he's sort of modest in his media dealings because, as you describe it in the book, he had a substantial victory over John Howard in terms of how far he got with the WIC legislation. He wanted to go further. Howard didn't want to go as far. I think, in a sense, Harrodine prevailed, but he didn't get everything he wanted. But he never went out to the media and said how he'd rolled the Prime Minister or even how he got the Prime Minister to back away. He wasn't like the current lot of um, politicians you see in the Senate in particular who will never get away from a microphone. How, how, did, he, how did he handle all that? Um, it's a good point. I mean, I've, I've quoted, um, you mentioned Margot Kingston. She said Brian Harradine had no idea how to cultivate um, a journalist, never spent any time cultivating journalists, wasn't interested, and didn't know how to do a one-liner, a one-line you know, one line grab for the, for, for the media. But I, th I think what Jared has just mentioned about the WIC legislation, the debate, as, as I sort of try to unpack it um, in, in the book, went on for more than 18 months, I think. Um, it went before the Senate twice and was rejected twice. Um, and um, then there were certain other political developments, notably in Queensland, um, where a Conservative government fell. Um, and then there was added incentive um, to, to, for all parties um, to do two things. One is to get a fair outcome. B, um, avoid um, a, an election fought on that um, particular issue. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not personally aware, but Margot Kingston and others have said then the key, the key thing to getting that deal made was that Brian Harradine wasn't going to go out and claim victory. He wasn't going to go out and say that John Howard had caved on particularly the four key sticking points that was said. So, and what had really happened instead 
was that Brian Harradine, you know, um, carried the can for it. He was attacked um, by various people, and I've, I've mentioned them in the book, um, um, particularly from the Indigenous community. Uh, he was he was attacked for being a sellout merchant. He he on on that issue, and I've heard it said quite recently, so a long time after the event. Um, but um, but the you know the, the the key part of the deal at the time was not to claim victory, not to say that he dudded John Howard um, on the issue. You can make up your own minds as to, you know, to sort of who, who, who came out best. John Howard in, in his memoirs you know, declared it was a fair compromise in the end. Um, you know, other people still have a negative view about it, but, but nobody has sought to change it since. So I, I think the deal was a, was a good one and it stuck. Um, but yes, it all depended on Brian Harradine not wanting to go out there and say, you know, I had this big victory, I, I beat up this other guy. And it'd be nice to John Howard, he'll speak at your funeral, is that, <laughs> is that the law? I, I want to ask a question. Um, you said when uh, Brian retired, um, the votes didn't, there was no one put forward to, to sort of replace him in the sort of uh, stands that he'd taken. So then the Greens got the seat. So. There was obviously not a body of support for his particular views. Was it just that he's, he was seen as Tasmania's own? I mean, he was the most least self-promoting individual who got so much, I suppose, acreage in the press. So what was it about Brian Harradine? I mean, once he went, there wasn't sort of a, a swelling of votes for someone like him. What, what was it about his personality? Uh, that, that's a good question, Anne, and I'm not sure that I exactly know the answer to that. But I think, yes, definitely, when, when, he, when he got elected, presumably in 1975, it was on the back of his public profile of having been expelled from the ALP, um, you know, in, in you know, rather unusual um, circumstances. And with a vote that was 9-8 against him in, in the initial um, uh, proceedings. And, and as I explained it, uh, well, I won't go into that, but because that's not answering your question. But I think having got in and, and proved that he was, um, you know, somebody who was prepared to fight on behalf of Tasmania, uh, the Tasmanians, you know, fell in love with him. Um, they may not have agreed with every one of his, his positions, but they realised that there was, there was a voice, they had a voice in Canberra, um, and he was prepared to, to fight for them. Um, he, he did view the Senate as a state's house, and, and that he had a role as a representative of a state to advance the interests of his state. So he wasn't bound by party political uh, decisions. And he, he just got around the place in, as far as I can tell, in very low key ways. Um, he didn't have big election rallies, didn't make big speeches around the place. He had small uh, sort of almost house level um, uh, meetings, but that was enough. Um, in, in Tasmania in 1975, I remember these figures, the quota to get elected as a senator in Tasmania was only 22,000 votes. He got, Brian got 28,000 what I call first preference votes. But you could build um, a constituency, you know, with a relatively small um, number of votes. I mean, the same proportion as everybody else needed, but, um, but if you were seen to be doing the job as an independent, then then he you know he just got re-elected and re-elected and re-elected. It's amazing. Jeffrey Little. Uh, um, 
I'm, uh, I'm a bit right of Genghis Khan, let me tell you. And my great-great-grandfather was a policeman in Hobart, so great connection. But when I was growing up, Haradine was very impacted on the political scene as a younger as a kid. But what was the connection, what was his connection with and how did, how did the DLP and he get on together in that overall scenario? And could he be described as a bit of a cantankerous spoiler? Um, I, I don't know specifically the answer to that question. He appears to have been um, in the DLP in South Australia for about 18 months or so. That's what he told the ALP National Executive in 1968. Um, but he left left the DLP in the early um, 60s. Uh, when he was in Tasmania, he joined the Labor Party. So I, I don't know what relationship he had uh, with the DLP, if any. But I've also... I've also said in the book that obviously um, Brian um, um, was sympathetic um, to values that were would have been similar to some of the DLP um, values, but as far as I know, apart from his time in South Australia, he, he had no uh, specific connection with the DLP as such. If I can just add, if I can just add a bit on that, um, agreeing with you. Um, the DLP didn't really exist in Tasmania. It, it, it was strong in Victoria for a time, very strong. It was strong in Queensland for some time, and it had representation in New South Wales. But in Tasmania, it virtually didn't exist. And by the time Brian gets to Canberra uh, in 1976, as you point out, in February 76, all the DLP senators are gone. So there was no DLP representation in, in Canberra. The DLP was wound up effectively in 1978, I think it was. Um, I mean, some people started later on and said they were the DLP, but the DLP was formally wound up. So there wasn't any really any DLP around in those days. And Brian was, um, I mean, in Tasmania, what mattered was the right-wing Labor Party. And there wasn't much point going to Tasmania and joining the DLP because they would have got, well, in an election, they probably might have got 2 or 3% of the vote, you know. Apologies for coming late, and I haven't read the book, but I have ordered it. I wondered whether you covered the expulsion of Haradine, which went over a number of years. And one of the charges against him was that he was photographed outside of Belloc House, having left a meeting uh, with other union leaders concerning planning for the ACTU. And the big fish that everyone was after in the left wasn't Haradine, it was Barry Unsworth. And Belloc House was associated with the NCC, the National Civic Council, and that was what they were trying to get him on. Not the DLP connection, but the National Civic Council connection. And I wonder whether you cover that in the book. Um, I, I don't mention Belloc House in the book, but the... Um I thought it was very interesting. So the, 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 two, the two big things that went against him in the ALP, technically, was in 1968, his Friends of the Communist um, remark. Um, it, it was alleged as part of that that he had DLP or NCC connection, but that wasn't, that wasn't the charge. The charge was that he did insult the executive or, or whatever um, by you know, implying that they were Friends of the Communist. But I do go into some detail, and I, you'll be interested to read it, Michael. Um, if you don't already know it, you may you may well. Um, that um, again, what he was 
expelled for or charged with was it was a charge by Ray Geets from Ray Geetzelt of interference with the um, uh, Federated Miscellaneous Workers Union elections in New South Wales. That, as I understand it, um, is the charge, uh, was the charge. Um, but the um, and this is this is the, f the best fun bit to write um, was to record what happened um, to those charges. Now that they didn't mention Bellock House, they mentioned Porter House in 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 Sydney, which was the headquarters of the NCC. Apparently, Brian, when asked about a porterhouse, uh, he said it was a really good steak. <laughs> if but I could just sort of clarify something about Bellock House, it's not, it's not quite as, as you see. <laughs> Bellock House, I think, is number 12, Saxwell Street, Q. In those days, it was run by a couple of Jesuits, priests ran it, and it was used by a number of people for a conference room because it was an old 1890 Victorian mansion, which was very run down. It's now taken over by some, some trendy... Uh, school where they all wear sandals and don't do any work, I think, yeah. So it's gone a long way from the Jesuits in the 1950s to where Press Hill is it? Yeah. Um, and Sorry. Yeah, uh, I haven't read the book. I, I, can I stand up? Yeah. No, 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 no stay down. Okay. Right. I, I haven't read the book yet, but I will. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested... In, in, uh, you, you mentioned briefly that uh, uh, Brian fell out with Santa Maria uh, in, in 82, I think you said. Um, I, I, I worked with Brian very closely for a long time. Uh, I was secretary of the Clarks Union in Tasmania. and uh, I thought I recognised the face. Yeah, well, you know, you get a, you get a face like this. Uh, but the, the, what I'm, while I was staggered at, at the time, because my youngest son is here, called Brian. Haradine was his godfather. We were very close. But when the split came between Mainz and Santa Maria, uh, and I was obviously with Santa Maria, um, Brian wasn't. Do you have any? Do you have any real idea of why why that happened? I, I think Jared's the expert on that one. Well, I cover in my book. Santa Maria and the Bishops, what I call the movement goes to Splitsville. And I talk about the split in the National Civic Council, um, which ran from 1978 to 1982, and no one really knows what it was about. And I say that seriously. It's not clear what it was about. It was essentially about a pers personality. I think essentially a row between, or a dispute between Bob Santa Maria, the president of the National S Civic Council, and Gerald Mercer, who was the secretary, but Maine supported Mercer because I think he felt that Mercer had been badly treated. And having read all the documents, I agree with that. And at any rate, this went on for four years and eventually there was a meeting at Bellock House and um, a vote was taken. The majority of the NCC went against Mercer and Maine's and Haradine got up, walked out, said he'd been a member of the... Well, no one was ever a member of the NCC. You sort of turned up and... Um, so he said he'd been with the organisation since 1956. It was now 1982. It was the first time they'd ever had a vote and uh, he wasn't impressed and he walked out and he and Santa Maria never spoke again. Uh, the minutes record, which were given to me, that uh, Peter Taylor, who was prominent in the NCC at the time, called out, get good riddance, as Haradine walked out the room, which is anyone who knew Peter Taylor, it sounds right. Um, so look, this was essentially a personal dispute. 
I think that Maine's did the right thing. I knew Maine's not particularly well. I knew Santa Maria a lot better. I think that Maine's felt that Mercer and the guys who went with Mercer were being badly treated. And I think they were. Because if you have an argument in an organisation, and someone like me who knew the organisation very well and others, having read all the documents, still doesn't know what it was about, I mean, I would blame the management and not the staff. And I think he, Santa Maria handled that very badly. Now, Santa Maria was involved in a lot of internal splits in his own organisations. Now, he did a lot of very good work. He was a brilliant polemicist and all of that. And he was a very good anti-communist and all of that. But he didn't handle people well. And I think Maines went with the people who he thought had been handled badly. Yep. Can, can I just add a little bit to that, Paul? I, I have attempted to answer that question in my other book, my memoir. Um, um, and I've tried to answer the question, but the answer is exactly as Jared um, has said it, nobody knows, you know, what, what the issues were. I just, I just found it uh, amazing, actually, Jared, that you, 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 you credit Mains with greater people skills than Santa. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, 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 a bloody conga line of, of, of corpses uh, of people who, who, who work their tails off for, uh, for Mains for very little thanks or gratitude. Well, Paul, I just qualify that by saying that I knew Bob Santa Maria very well and I barely knew John at all. <laughs> so you might be right. I had no dealings with John. I just know how he, re how he reacted, yeah. But I don't, uh, I don't dispute that. Jeff King, I'd like to just say, isn't it great, firstly, before I ask the question, uh, that um, I think um, one of our Liberal Party ex-greatest leaders and indeed our best Prime Minister has offered to do a book um, on a man who aligned a little bit with the ALP, albeit a definite independent, written by a man who obviously is a good author and speaks very well, um, also aligned with the ALP. One wonders whether um, an ex-Labor Party Prime Minister would be jumping an opportunity to do something similar. That's just a question I wonder. But anyway, um, one wonders uh, if Santa Maria was to come back, uh, sorry, if um, Haradine was to come back to life now. Obviously a man who was anti-communist, anti-corruption, that be government or corporate, and indeed a man with good family values. How do you think he would view our Australia now? I mean, that, 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 that is actually a really good question. And I did think about that. Um, and if I thought about it a, um, a bit more, the book probably would have been a page or two longer um, in, in reflecting on that, because I think when you look at politics today, it is it is quite a different kettle of fish to what it was in 2004, um, 2005 when when Brian Brian left. You know, it's really hard to answer that question. What would somebody make of it? Because if we if we apply if we if we seek to apply their their views as they were then to the situation now, well, that's one thing. But maybe their views would have you know, um, changed, you know, over a period of time. Um, so, so I don't know, but I, I reckon that, I reckon that's a really good question um, um, to, to try and to think about how somebody would have responded to, to current um, circumstances. If I can be so bold as to be so brave, particularly with Tony Abbott not here, um, I think Brian might have, for example, voted for the, for the referendum this year. But who knows, you know, he might have had a particular view on, on the constitution and how the constitution should work. I don't know. There might have been a lot of other things, you know, questions of marriage equality, um, other things that came along. 
who knows, you know, what, what Brian's view would have been uh, on that. But I, but I think it, it is worth reflecting on um, and, and thinking about how things change, even in a relatively short period of time. Good question. I think it's appropriate because Brian was often sneered at by some of left-wing journalists who used to want to report that Brian was the father of 13 children. And I think it's important to point out that he married Barbara and they had six children and she sadly died, I think, in 1980. Um, and then he married Marion, who was a widow with seven children. So um, he was... A, and as Keith points out at the end of your book, where you explain all this, that all his um, 13 children, the... Um, they all turned up at the valedictory speech in the Senate. So he obviously got on very well with all his kids um, from, um, from both families. Okay. He was very socially conservative, but he was reasonable. He wasn't a fanatic. Um, just in terms of Brian Harradine being in Parliament for 30 years, last 15 years of that time you saw the Greens rise first in Tasmania and then come on the federal scene probably towards the end of his time in Parliament. What was his dealings with the Greens as a movement and as a political party and in some of their positions? I think the only thing interest he shared in common with um, uh, Bob Brown was his love of uh, bushwalking in the, in the Tasmanian wilderness. But I think... Um, um, uh, when when Brian left, I, th I think the the, rec the the comment he made was that, you know, he he represented a different constituency um, to the Greens, but but it is it is interesting, and again, you tend to forget these things to to, to map the, the the course of of change, because you know, as I say, when Brian went into the into the Senate, you know, there were only one or two independents, um, as as Jared has said, the DLP had come and gone. Um, in, in the Senate, the um, um, the Democrats were the next group to emerge, and one of the really interesting things when you look back at it is that Brian voted against the GST. You know, if he'd, if he'd voted for it, uh, the GST could have been uh, adopted in the form that the, that the coalition government wanted, but he refused to vote for it. So the, the government went off and did a deal with the Democrats uh, to introduce the GST. And then they lost all their seats over the next couple of elections because people, you know, re, you know, appeared to resent that. And then the Greens, you know, started to emerge as a sort of, you know, the the sort of the I don't know what you call it, but um, but, but certainly the third party, the, the sort of the dissident group. If you don't want to vote for them or for them, you know, vote for them. But Brian disagreed with the Greens. I, I'd say on on most things. However, there is another bit of a unity ticket, which I've mentioned in the book, um, between uh, Bob Brown um, and uh, Brian Harrodin on, on, um, on the visit um, to Australia um, of Chinese um, Premier, and I keep forgetting his name. No, not Z, it was who, 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 yeah, who, President Who, who, who addressed the parliament the day after George Bush. Um, had a, um, Brian Harrodin boycotted that for reasons I mentioned in the book. The Greens also um, were opposed to that visit. They invited representatives of the Tibetan community to, to come along. But Bob Brown and one of his um, compatriots um, actually got expelled 
um, uh, suspended from the from the parliament because of comments they'd made the day before in, in during Bush's speech. So they were named by the Speaker and the Leader of the House um, was obliged to get up and move their suspension in Parliament. The Leader of the House is unfortunately not here tonight to defend himself, but it was Tony Abbott uh, um, at the time. So Brian, Brian on, a, on a number of human rights issues, um, Brian Harradine and the Greens were in alignment, but on a whole range of social um, social issues that, that were complete and completely different corners of the political spectrum um, why would Gough Whitlam have staked so much such as his leadership on someone who was then a relatively unknown figure and uh, how did uh, Brian Harradine get on with Mal Colston his fellow father of the Senate at the time <laughs> um, I have two really good questions um, um, sorry, just say the first one again. The, the, the Goff his oh, Goff staking his leadership. Sorry, yes, um, really interesting. Goff said and Goff knew that it wasn't really about Brian Harradine. It was about Goff Whitlam's attempts to reform the Victorian branch um, of the Labor Party, which was under the control of the, you know, the industrial hard left, and 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 the Labor Party was doing pathetically in Victoria at the time. So it was not about Brian Harradine, it was about Gough Whitlam's attempts to reform um, the party. And... Mal uh, Mel Colston. Yeah, Mel Colston, I, I, I discovered. Uh, now, he was considered a, a classic Labor rat um, 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 for defecting. Brian Harradine apparently warned um, Kim Beasley, who was then leader of the opposition, that he was likely to defect. Um, um, the Labor, um, but he, nothing happened and, and Colston defected. Anyway, I was told, but I really can't quote at the moment the reason why he, he, he defected. But Brian and he presumably got on quite well because they voted together on, an, on a number of issues, including, for example, the full um, privatisation of, of Telstra. So I, I think they had a, a good working relationship, but Mel Colston was definitely hated by the rest of the Labor Party. Well done, Keith. I mean, it's a great book. And as I said, anyone buys tonight, Tony Abbott will sign it when he gets back from Melbourne. Uh, unfortunately, as I said at the start, he's very upset, but he got caught with very bad weather, both in Melbourne and in Sydney. Um, so tonight, you've done a great job, and this is a terrific effort. I know you've done a, a, an earlier biography, which is a longer work, uh, but this is a, a great effort about a person who's played a very important role in Australian politics and is probably not as well remembered as he should be, but you've made up for that tonight. Well done. Thank you, Jeff. Okay.